Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to the Homelands Adventure Podcast. Hello and welcome back to the Homelands Adventure Podcast. I'm your host Cameron Hall and today I'm very excited to be speaking with Benjamin Alexander, a former international DJ turned professional ski racer who is aiming to become the first alpine skier to represent Jamaica at the Winter Olympic Games. Morning Benjamin. Good morning Cameron, thank you very much for having me. It's an absolute pleasure to be able to speak to you today and uh, I'm really excited to get into the conversation because it sounds like you have quite a fascinating story. Um, um, But first of all, let's just start off with, uh, I believe you're you're in Jamaica at the moment at the start of a a press tour. Yes, I have finally made it to Jamaica for my first time. Uh, I've been here for about a week now and I'm still under quarantine, um, but I can say there are many worse places in the world to be stuck. Uh, for a quarantine period, I'm still able to access the beach and I'm able to access all the good local food. So yeah, you, you catch me on the north coast of Jamaica. We'll get into your story, but um, I, I suppose when you mentioned there, it's your first time in Jamaica. Maybe we can start with painting the picture. So where did you grow up and, um, uh, and, and what, what was your, your upbringing like? So I was born in Northamptonshire. It's about an hour north of London in the United Kingdom to uh, an English mother and a Jamaican father. My father was born in the West Coast, on the West Coast of Jamaica and moved to England at the age of five uh, in 1961. So my, my, my father was pretty much British to the core. You know, he spent most of his childhood in, in England and all of his adult life in England. Um, and my, my upbringing, uh, both of my parents uh, drive for a living. My father drives a bus. He's a few years shy of retirement right now. Uh, my, my mother drives special needs children around for the local county council. Uh, and so I had a relatively you know, standard working class affair upbringing. Uh, and as a result of that, never really had the chance to ski or, or be exposed to skiing at all at a younger age. No one in my family skied. Um, and so, you know, the reason we're on this podcast talking about skiing and potentially getting to the Olympics is uh, uh, something that came much later in, in life for me. And so as a kid, what sports are you into? So as you know, uh, in England, it's, it's all about football and that's football with your feet, not, not soccer, as the Americans call it. Uh, so I played football for my school and that was really it. Um, it. It's funny because I've spent a lot of time in the States over the last few years. And it's kind of hard to explain to an American that the, the, the difference between our main sport of football and our second sport of rugby would be like the difference between their top five sports combined and their sixth sport. So it was really just football, football, football for me as a kid. And, and when you were growing up, did you, um, while skiing came later, which we'll come on to, did you spend much time in the mountains, in that mountain environment? Um, did you participate in any any winter sports? Obviously, you know, you can play football throughout the winter, but any of those specific winter sports, um, uh, had you already had maybe a little bit of a taste of, you know, what was to, to come later? 
absolutely none at all. Uh, I'd spent pretty much zero time in the mountains uh, and until very late in life, until my 30s. Um, I had not had any experience of any winter sports. Um, and it, it really just, it came, it came really late to me in life. It, and in fact, I did the complete opposite. I left England in 2006 after graduating from university um, with a one-way ticket to the beach. I basically followed my, my heart and decided that I wanted to live in Asia. I left the Western world behind. And so for the period of 2006, all the way through until about 2015, 16, I spent most of my time in tropical climates, um, the complete opposite of, uh, of the, the conditions that we need for winter sports. When you mention um, your, your father's Jamaican, was, was Jamaican um, culture part of your upbringing? Or did you, did you feel very sort of English when you were growing up? Uh, I, I was definitely raised as an English child. I had very few Caribbean, Jamaican influences. Um, obviously, my grandmother and my, my grandfather and all of that side of the family would cook Caribbean food. And uh, uh, you know, th those were my favorite meals of, of the week or of the month, depending on how often we got to see my grandmother. I had several Caribbean friends uh, at college between the age of 16 and 18, shall we say. Um, but, but really, it was very, very small, very, very small. For the most part, I was as raised as a, as a British child, as an English kid. And so when it came to um, escaping into the big wide world, as you say, after graduation in 2006, what, what was, that, was that plan? Was that the start of the DJing side of your, uh, of your life? Or was that purely um, escaping the education system, going to travel the world, have some fun, go explore? Uh, and, and when did the music side uh, of your uh, career open up? Yeah, so it's interesting. Um, the very same Caribbean people that I spoke about that were in my life in my college years when I was doing my A-levels from the age of 16 through 18 um, were the same people that got me into this form of underground music that was called garage music. I'm sure you'll remember Craig David and, and all of the big stars, the Arthur Dodger and Miss Dynamite and all of those big stars of the late 90s, early 2000s. And, and so back then, this was you know, five, six, seven years before YouTube. The only way for us to get access to that music was to either go to nightclubs and hear it, and I wasn't of legal age to do that, or on pirate radio um, in London, there were this huge swath of stations that were, that were playing this underground music. And so like myself, um, my parents had moved from London. My parents grew up in London. They'd moved to Northamptonshire to afford um, housing before I was born. And similarly, the majority of my other Caribbean friends that were in Northamptonshire had a similar background that they um, originated in London and their family had kind of moved away from the city to afford housing. But we would all be in the car or on the train every other weekend or three times a month to to visit family, uncles, aunties, cousins back in the city. And so what would happen is these guys would go to their various sectors of the city. Um, my family was all from West London, Ealing, Acton and Fulham. Um, and, and they would go to other parts of the city and bring back cassettes where they'd recorded hours and hours and hours of content off of these illegal pirate radio stations. And the kind of mindset that I have is that when I get into something, I kind of just go down the rabbit hole. And the only way for me to really recreate these experiences was to go out and buy the records myself. Fortunately, we had a few uh, substantial record shops in Northamptonshire so I could get hold of the records. I bought turntables. This would have been in the start of the year 2000, February 2000. And, and that's where my music career started. 
And um, and so when it came to, to traveling, was it a, a working travel or um, uh, when did it, I suppose, when did it become um, professional career for you? Because it sounds like in between starting, you had gone to university as well and you were studying. Was it a, was it a paid kind of job and a career that you sought out at this and in conjunction with your studies or was it something that followed? I never traveled much as a child with my family. As I said, I come from a kind of humble background. We, we, we never traveled far. I remember a couple of trips to Spain or France by coach. Um, it, it's funny to say that the first time I ever flew was at the age of 19. I'd never been on a plane until the age of 19. Um, but yeah, yet here I sit in Jamaica, my 63rd country. So I've obviously done a lot of catching up. Well, the reason I, I, I left uh, England, left the Western world, was, was not because of the DJing. It's because of something that I saw when I went out to Asia in 2005. A friend of mine had twisted my arm and convinced me that I'd have to come and see Thailand. We spent a month out there. And after this month, for the first time in my life, I felt this feeling of homesickness. And I'd never had that feeling for my, my actual home in Northamptonshire. I'd always been the one that was wanting to get away and so it was kind of like a little thread that I started to pull out I still had a year of university to complete um, I went back into university for my final year when Christmas rolled around in 2005 we went back to Thailand again for another month and it was there and then that I decided that as soon as I finished university I would go back to Thailand and see what life was like out there and the real reason for that was I went to one of the poorest parts of the world, but experienced some of the most amazing weather, some of the most incredible food. Um, Thailand is known as the land of smiles. Everyone was happy. And when I returned back to London, I saw some of the most affluent people in the world sitting on the tube every morning, just looking miserable. And something just clicked in my head that there was this disparity between the two. And I wanted to, as I said, pull up that thread a little further and see what, would, what life would be like in Asia. Uh, and so it's kind of a funny story in that three days after my last exam, I graduated from electrical and electronic engineering at UCL. I basically jumped on a plane, one-way ticket to Thailand uh, with about 250 pounds in my pocket, um, no work visa, no work set up, no accommodation plans. And I just thought I would see what would happen. Worst case scenarios, I've just come back to England with, with, my, with my tail between my legs. And in the end, I ended up spending the better part of a decade in Asia. Um, I worked several jobs. I, I moved to Hong Kong after a few years. I worked in finance out there. Um, I also did some modeling. And it was around about 2009, 2010, that the hobby of DJing um, was starting to put enough money into my, into my pocket, basically spend the better part of the last decade on the road as an international DJ, having performed in over 30 countries, um, having performed at Burning Man uh, for the last decade, almost every year. And, and just had like a, a great experience and a wild ride with it. And, uh, and what was your sound? What, was, uh, what kind of DJ were you? Because uh, you mentioned Garage earlier on, which is uh, yeah. you know, very much a, a prominent scene in, in, that, uh, in those early 2000 years in the UK. Yeah. But it was uh, presumably the, uh, the playlist sort of changed and developed somewhat by the time it became uh, uh, something that you would take and travel to, yeah. you know. Absolutely. Um, although you'll hear certain garage beats back on the radio these days, and I'm, I'm very shocked when I go back to England on, on occasion that I do hear it on the radio and it's being used in commercials and, and whatnot. The, the main era of garage was really that 99 through to, shall we say, 2003, 2004. That was, its, uh, that was really its moment in the sun. Um, so, so when I was DJing in, in Asia, it was really more house music. Um, and as I collected more and more records and it's only performed in more and more places around the world, my sound became more and more refined. So you have the kind of the, 
the overarching subgenre or the genre of house and then that kind of funnels down to is it like deep house and elements of techno um i spent five summers in ibiza i had a, a residency out there i had a radio show out there and so all of the places around the world started to kind of define my sound and so deep house and techno somewhere in in that realm is, is what is the genre of, of music that i was predominantly playing around the world you mentioned say place like burning man and um uh, in ibiza and how all very very kind of warm places uh yeah. how do you get to the point of the music and the skiing meeting to set you on to the path that you're currently on now yeah so in 2015 one of my dear friends tom invited me out to a heli ski trip for christmas at a, at a lodge called micah it's uh, one of the best heli ski lodges in the world it's in british columbia um unlike a lot of the heli, uh, other heli ski lodges this is a five-star resort um, on top of having five-star powder and amazing snow. And what Tom had decided to do is put together this trip with about 30 of our friends from Burning Man, and we would stay at the lodge through Christmas. Um, and so when he invited me, this would have been, call it October or maybe September of that year, I, I replied, Tom, I've never, I've never skied before in my life. What, I, what business do I have coming to a heli-ski lodge? And Tom said, look, you know, the, the, the accommodation is incredible. What we plan to do is set up DJ equipment. It's going to be all of our close friends and family from our Burning Man camp. Uh, and there are going to be about a half a dozen, eight, nine of you guys that are the house cats that are just not skiing because you don't have the ability to, or you don't have the ability to at this level, you should come. And so me being me, I told Tom, well, look, I'm, I'm DJing in Lebanon uh, next month and I have to get to Lebanon via Dubai. And Dubai has an indoor ski hill. I'm going to go and learn how to ski and I'll come and heli ski with you. And he kind of laughed at me like, you don't do that. You know, as you're smiling right now, you can't go and learn how to ski powder by skiing two hours on an indoor slope. And so super long story short, I did not ski on that trip, but I had the most amazing time of my life out there partying with the guys. We flew in DJ equipment, as I said, and it then clicked that I'm having the time of my life in this incredible uh, heli ski resort. I've never been in the mountains with this much snow, this much powder. I've never seen this, experienced this before. And I kind of set the gauntlet to myself that I would not return to that heli ski lodge because it was an annual trip that he put together, unless I was going to be one of the participants that was also jumping out of the helicopter uh, multiple times each day throughout the trip and just having the most amazing time of my life. And it, it just really started there. That was the impetus to say, okay, this is something I want to do. Up until that point, I'd really resisted all of the sports that require carrying a lot of equipment around because I would famously travel the world with just one pair of jeans and maybe five or six different t-shirts. And that would just be my uniform. I would always just be carry on and I would keep my life as lo-fi and as, as simple as possible. And so the thought of these heavy equipment, heavy sports was just the polar opposite to what I wanted to do. But having experienced this, I, I was hooked and decided that this is what I wanted to do. The experience of being in the lodge and wanting to, uh, you know, be part of the, the outdoor crowd and, and be in the mountains and be skiing, but there's quite a big step to then put yourself into the position where you're now proactively campaigning to compete and represent Jamaica on the world's biggest stage at the Olympic Games. Yeah. What is it that, that put you in that direction as opposed to thinking well you know you could just enjoy a powder skiing holiday you could just enjoy a resort skiing holiday you could just enjoy the support as uh, as a leisurely activity 
where did that competitive aspect come in? Right. So I think you're being a little polite in saying that skiing for the first time in, or being exposed to skiing for the first time in the end of 2015 and now here in 2020 trying to get to the Olympics is a, is a big jump. It's more than a jump. It's a cosmic jump. Um, 2018 was really the year. Um, so between getting to see heli skiing in 2015 and actually getting on skis and, and whatnot, I managed to get back to that heli ski resort in, for Christmas of 2017. And my ninth day of skiing ever was heli skiing. So just to kind of give an example as to how I try to accelerate things and get things done quickly and like really push to, to get to achieve my goals. I, I don't think there are many people in the world that can say that the ninth day of skiing was heli skiing. But 2018 was really the kind of the pivotal year. In 2018, um, a friend of mine, Tyler, had set up an event called Send It. It's a group of tech entrepreneurs that get together on the mountain of Revelstoke, also in British Columbia. Um, they also bring in about half a dozen ski pros and it's a, it's a big ski trip. And so I spent a week uh, on the mountain with the guys there. It was my first consistent body of, of skiing, which was then followed up immediately with flying to South Korea to, to get to the Winter Olympics as a, as a spectator. My first ever time being at any Olympics of any sort. And I noticed that my father's nature, nationality or nation was massively underrepresented. Jamaica only had three athletes at the time. Uh, the following month, I went to Niseko and skied five mountains. Uh, and then three months after that, I had a tour of South America and ended up skiing both sides of Patagonia and skied about 12 mountains on both Chile and, and Argentina. And so that year was really the moment where it's like there's a potential to do something here then if we fast forward to the start of 2019 the the event i just mentioned in revelstoke was having its second year and myself and a couple of friends decided that we would spend a whole month out there and i went into this trip with the with the game plan of if i can survive a month of skiing without killing myself i like to go fast so injury was obviously a, a big factor um, and if I can get the validation from some of the professional skiers that are going to be at this trip, that this is an idea worth chasing, then I'll kind of turn on the afterburners and do it. So I spent, in the end, I extended and skied 37 days in Revelstoke, um, during the course of which I got to ski with former U.S. national skier Gordon Gray. Uh, and we skied together on our fifth day. And I told Gordon about this crazy idea of, hey, I'm, I'm potentially considering skiing for, for Jamaica at the next Winter Olympics three years out from now. What are your thoughts on this? And so we skied for the day. And at the end of the day, Gordon said to me quite bluntly, he said, look, um, your technique is absolutely atrocious. It's terrible, but that is to be expected. You, you've just started skiing a couple of years ago. You've had a couple of lessons. This is what, day 20 on snow for you, day 25? Of course your technique is terrible. He says, the one thing that I fail to understand is how the hell you're keeping up with me. You're absolutely fearless. And he said, in, in skiing and especially in ski racing, if you have the fear, it doesn't matter how good your technique is, you're never gonna get anywhere. But if you're fearless, we can teach you the technique and actually you have more than half the battle won. So it was Gordon Gray who was quite instrumental in really helping me understand the system, understanding the fist points, understanding what I needed to do to compete. Um, and it, it, it's just been, you know, it's just been full on since then. In those 37 days in Revelstoke, I skied 1.7 million vertical feet. I left the mountain holding the, the, the mountain record for the most amount of vertical feet skied in one day, which is 103,000 feet. Um, this season, I've skied 181 days, despite the chairlift shutting early with, due to the pandemic. And it, that's just the way that I approach these problems. I like to brute force them and I throw time and effort and dedication at things. And so now I'm at a point where I feel 
very confident that if we can get back on snow and if we can have a somewhat relatively normal and it doesn't have to be completely normal, but as long as there are some races to which I can attend and, and, and reduce my fist points in this coming season, I feel very confident that the only thing that could stop me from qualifying right now would be a, a serious injury. And can you take us back within, within all of this happening, was there a specific moment where that idea of representing Jamaica came into your mind uh, specifically what what was it that I inspired you to take that route because you know you're, we're, you're speaking uh, we're having this conversation now and you're in Jamaica for the first time um, yeah. and uh, you mentioned you 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 know brought up um, you know a very English middle-class family totally. where yeah. where did this you know idea of representing your dad's country of birth become a, a thought in your mind yeah. So the interesting thing is when you are a mixed race person, um, and as I said, you know, half Jamaican, half, half English, when you are in a group of black people, you are the white person because you are the whitest person there. And when you are in a group of white, per white people, you are the black person because you are the blackest person there. Um, and so obviously with skiing be a, being a predominantly white sport, whenever I was skiing with my friends, and especially at this, uh, this event Send It, which is you know, predominantly a, a lot of white people, the joke is that I am the Jamaican Jamaican skier, uh, the Jamaican on ice. Uh, the, the the references to cool runnings and the Jamaican bobsleigh team are you know are thick and fast from all of the people around me, and so it it just naturally became that thing. I am the Jamaican skier. Um, obviously, Cool Runnings, the movie, came out in '93 uh, when I was nine, ten years old, and that played a huge part in in my upbringing. I'm sure I'm sure you know you watched it a dozen times as well. And it was a very proud moment for me as a child. And so when thinking about taking skiing to the next level, for some reason, skiing for England never really came into the equation. I was the Jamaican skier. I was the Jamaican, even though you know, I, I hold dual citizenship and I'm raised uh, as a British person, it, it just never really entered the equation. And then going to the Olympics in 2018 and seeing the lack of representation um, for the, the country of Jamaica, despite what I thought would have been the, the wave of people that would have been interested in winter sports of Jamaican uh, heritage and of Jamaican background after the, the Cool Runnings movie, just kind of gave me that idea that maybe that's something that, that I can slot into there and maybe I can, I can help that, that push that kind of push that direction, push that, that idea. And obviously in 2020, the Black Lives Matters movement has yeah. come very much to the fore and is now more in the public consciousness uh, and um, thought process than, than it's ever been um, before. And just outside of um, sort of the, your aims and ambitions, um, which we can perhaps come back into, just a, on, a, on a very human level, what sure. have been your experiences of that movement and your um, perhaps... Uh, perhaps thoughts of it and, and in terms of it making a difference and where we are now, just on a, on a very fundamental level to you personally. Yeah. So since the uh, killing of George Floyd and the release of that video and, you know, the, 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 the real kind of the catalyst for this movement, shall we say, I've been in a bubble of somewhat in that I've been in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, pretty much predominantly for that, for that period, just getting to Jamaica last week. Um, Jackson's quite a white place. It's uh, it's Middle America. Um, Wyoming is the least populated state in the entire in the entire country. Um, 
in terms of population density and whatnot. And so in terms of actual day-to-day, -day, I've been somewhat insulated from it. it. It hasn't really had much effect on the town of Jackson, but I will admit there were a couple of marches and a couple of vigils which I attended, um, which I was super happy to see. But I wanna say the most interesting thing that's come out of this whole movement for me personally, is that people feel comfortable to have these uncomfortable conversations. It's given people the opportunity to say, well, I, I never knew that that was a thing. Can we have a, have a conversation about this? And it's been a conversation starter. And even, even overhearing other conversations in the park or uh, restaurant tables next door about people having these uncomfortable conversations is a huge move forward for racial equality and, 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 and the rights of black people in this country and beyond. So I, I think it's been a, a great thing. Um, and I hope to see more of it. And, and when, we, when you mentioned that uh, in amongst the, the people that you're, you're spending time with on the mountain, you're known as the Jamaican skier. Is that something that bothered you? No, I, you know, the island of Jamaica always has this kind of mystique or this kind of cachet about it. Uh, you know, Bob Marley, Cool Runnings. I, I never saw it as a slur. I always, you know, through my upbringing, even though I'd never been here, I'd never been to Jamaica, I was very proud of being Jamaican. Um, I think for the most part, all of the cultural references that come from the country are, are very cool. Um, the island has had so much influence on, on, on music and culture and art. Um, you know, it punches well above its weight class if you think about the, the, the population. And so I never took it as a slur. And to be quite frank, you know, it was just a joke. And actually the just a joke of the Jamaican the Jamaican skier was the thing that kind of kept ringing in my ears to make me dig deeper about well what would it take to actually be the Jamaican skier the first Jamaican alpine skier and yeah no I, I, I just kind of I just kind of ran with it. Since you declared you know your ambitions and you set yourself on the path to um, try and accrue the, the right number of fist points to be able to qualify and um, hopefully make it into that uh, uh, well, I say make it into the 2022 squad, but presumably you are the squad. I, I am the ski team, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so to be, to be that representative, have you encountered any um, negativity? Have you encountered any um, abuse um, from people in setting out your ambitions? I, I'm super happy to say that I have, from the ski race community and from the skiing community at large, they have been nothing but supportive and helpful. Um, up until this point in the, in the world of skiing, um, I haven't, I, I have not received any kind of like negative looks or, or anything like that. So, I, you know, I'm happy to report that totally. And, you know, when it comes to um, white privilege, I think skiing is that sport which it is incredibly white privilege it's perhaps a, an epitome of of what white, white privilege is in many ways and certainly with the movement happening you know we're all looking more inwardly towards ourselves and you know when when i think about who we are and what we do as a business it's 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 difficult to know where to come at the conversation from because we primarily operate within a world that is incredibly whitewashed um do you, how much of a role do you see um the position that you're in now in becoming a, uh, a, a, a perhaps a, a figurehead for more people 
um, of uh, different ethnic backgrounds to be able to get into the sport of skiing and perhaps just in winter sports in general? Yeah, absolutely. So I think that for the most part, the reason the sport is associated with white privilege is it's several fold. First of all, it's an expensive sport. Okay, so you need to be um, blessed financially to be able to afford the sport, typically, or at least that's the assumption. You need to be blessed geographically if you're not blessed financially, or, or you need to have a combination of the both of the two. Maybe you grew up near mountains um, and had easy access to them, or you need to be blessed by virtue of the fact that your parents skied. And if you are of the black community, statistically, um, let's just talk about America, you are more likely to be in cities and less likely to be near mountains. You are more likely to have less you know, disposable financial means to be able to get into an expensive sport such as skiing. And you are also less likely to have your parents um, ski and then you know, ski as a child. So you kind of like have the deck stacked against you. Uh, similarly, as I've explained so far, all three of those were stacked against me geographically. Parents didn't ski and financially. And so what I would like this bid to be um, not only for you know, my own fun and joy of getting to the Olympics, but I'd also happily like to be that figurehead or the, or the poster child for people that thought that they don't belong in the sport by virtue of their race, or people that feel like they don't belong in the sport by virtue of the fact that they didn't do it before they were 20 or 30 or 40. And I hope that me doing what I'm doing, especially coming into the game so late, and also having the deck stacked against me in the same way that many other people may do, I hope that I can show that if you apply yourself to something and you, you really want to achieve something, then success can be had um, in, in anything really, not just skiing. And I, I'm really happy to kind of like wave that flag. So today, I believe you're 37. Um, yes. You've been skiing for five years. Yes. Um, and uh, that time on snow that, you know, a lot of the people that you'll be competing against um, uh, uh, with all being well, like you make it uh, to um, to qualify for 2022. They've had years and years of training and time on yeah. snow, which, you know, is just something which you, you can't reclaim, even though, you you know, it sounds like you, you're spending as much time as possible like you can in the mountains. Um, with all of these external factors and challenges that are there, um, two-part question, how daunting are they for you? And also outside of those, what's the most daunting internal battle like you're perhaps facing within your um path and goal okay so daunting external factors um you're absolutely right it is going to be nearly impossible for me to catch a child that was skiing since the age of two um and ski racing since the age of seven and now here they are you know mid mid 20s and uh, are at the olympics and they've truly dedicated themselves to the sport but for the most part, I feel that given the amount of time and effort that I'm putting in, I'm going to be able to catch up to the pack, shall we say. My intention, I have no delusions of grandeur here. I'm not going to be on the podium. I don't think that I'm going to get a medal unless something crazy happens. But what I would like to do is have a respectable result. And that means finishing in the top half of the pack, the top third of the pack, or, or whatever that may mean. And I just truly believe that when you attack something with the mindset of an adult and you are um, very disciplined and dedicated to your, your cause, every hour that you spend learning something can be worth five or 10 hours of what a kid may have spent on 
on snow, barely listening to the coach, checking in on Instagram and TikTok in between, in between runs and really not caring, being there because they were forced to be there because of their parents or for whatever reason that they, they find themselves there. And so I truly believe that I'm going to be able to catch up and, and, and give a, um, a respectable performance. I do not plan to come last is, is what I'm saying here. Um, with regards to internal factors, I think the biggest fear right now is potentially struggling with the financial side of, of, of the bid. Um, it's, an un, you know, it's, a, it's a sad but little known fact that the majority of Olympians uh, finish their Olympic bid or, or come out on the other side of the Olympics, 30 to $50,000 in debt. Um, for the most part, training prevents them from having a job at the same time. Uh, and so they throw their all and their personal savings into, into getting to the Olympics. And it's, it's financially challenging and it's financially taxing. Um, and so a big part of the reason why I'm here in Jamaica right now is not only to kind of experience the culture and finally tick this country off of the list and, and do what I should have done decades ago, but also to speak to sponsors and hopefully find companies that are interested in my story and to, to help push me forward. Really, the, the financial thing is the only thing that weighs on my mind right now. Um, in, in terms of the... The, the, the physical side of things, the mental side of things, I, I'm completely ready uh, and I'm excited for the journey and, and really do enjoy the journey. So let's talk practicalities. Um, there's obviously five um, ski racing disciplines and yep. uh, I believe it's GS is your key focus on the Alpine side of things. Yes. Um, so, and is, is Nordic skiing an element that you're also looking to compete in as well? Yeah, so it's really interesting. Um, the reason I enjoy skiing is because there is nothing quite like that sense of gravity flying you down a hill, flinging you across this frozen water at up to 70 miles an hour. There's just something about that sensation, that feeling. I love speed. I, I love motorcycles. I, I love to be on kite surf. I, I, kite surf. I, I love to do things that involve propulsion and, and speed. I love to drive fast, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And when I sat down with Gordon Gray and we, we assessed the disciplines and we figured out what would give me the, the greatest chance of, of getting to the Olympics, we ruled out the speed disciplines, which is um, downhill and super G, because the prerequisites for qualification for a B standard athlete, which is what I will be qualifying as, are an order of magnitude harder than they are to qualify for the technical events, which are slalom and giant slalom. So with giant slalom being the, the faster of the two events, we, we settled on giant slalom. Now, this whole Nordic thing had never really been on my mind at all until COVID hit. And so what happened is in the middle of March, um, I, I was in Jackson Hole, the ski lift stopped, stopped running, all of the resorts shut, and I was faced with this decision of, do I stop skiing or do I just learn backcountry skiing? I'd never really had much experience other than when I was heli skiing. Um, and so the obvious answer was to keep training, to keep skiing. Now, being fanatical about, about the sport in the you know, several months since the chair stopped spinning, I've skied over 100 days in the backcountry. Um, I've climbed almost 300,000 vertical feet, which is the sum total of 10 Mount Everest just trying to get to snow and keep skiing. And as a result of that, my cardio, my fitness, and my endurance has just gone through the roof. Um, so the silver lining of the chairlift sh shutting and, and COVID hitting uh, Jackson and interrupting my ski season was incredible fitness. Now, 
the reason I've started to think about Nordic cross-country skiing is almost like a hedge. Firstly, because I now have the, the, the endurance and fitness to do the sport. But secondly, I fear that if we don't have a normal ski season where races are not permitted, where chairlifts have weird operational hours, where racing really gets pushed to the back burner, um, and it becomes difficult for me to qualify and get my points because of that situation that's out of my control, then I feel that Nordic skiing, which doesn't require any of those things, might still have the potential of having a somewhat normal season, in which case my ambition of getting to the Olympics in a winter sport and representing the nation of Jamaica is not, not lost. I'll still have that as a, as, a, as a backup plan. And from the coaching perspective, you, you talk about GS. It's a very, very technical yeah. discipline. And with the time that, you know, the catch up in a way that, and, the, and the, the, from the stamina and the fitness that you're putting in, in the backcountry, it's a very different type of skiing, skiing in the backcountry sure. to what it is um, when you're skiing on a GS course. So are you getting help on the coaching side of things at this point in time? And how are you managing between the technical um, differences that both of those disciplines, which you know vary in in quite quite an extreme way, how are you balancing between those so you don't necessarily go uh, whilst you're hedging your bets too far in a direction that might take you away or hinder your chances in perhaps either side of uh, in either discipline? Yeah, absolutely. So I'll answer that backwards. Um, I'd like to clarify that the Nordic skiing is there as a, as a, you know, an encatchment just in case we can't have a a normal race season and that I'm still able to get to the Olympics and represent the country. I I don't want to kind of muddy the waters and make it seem like I'm training for both of them in tandem. And as, as you rightly kind of point to maybe taking some time away from GS to try and be the jack of both trades as opposed to just focusing on one. So the primary focus is, is giant slalom. But if, if COVID prevents us from having a, a proper race schedule and if the ability to get down to the required points is removed from me from you know, an external factor, then Nordic is something that I will fall back to. Um, with regards to the technical side of things, yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, GS is effing technical was a statement that I heard from a pretty prominent coach just, just, just a while ago. And it, it's something that is not easy. Um, you know, my, I've, I've, I've had six races thus far, and one of the things that really struck me is, uh, and I, at my first race in Big Sky Montana in January of this year, is the technicality required, especially on the slower sections, to be as efficient and to be uh, to be able to conserve as much speed as possible. I do not yet have a full-time coach, um, but I've been to several race camps. I just finished a race camp in Mount Hood with Phil and Steve Mayer, which was which was very helpful. Um, the guys were quite impressed with my abilities given the short amount of time that I've spent on snow. And as I now get through this first full season of skiing and, and, and racing, the intention is to find a full-time coach and just really spend all of my time in gates, um, all of my time doing drills. Um, and I truly believe that I'll be able to get to a qualification within the next, within the, within the next ski season, which is well ahead of, of the deadline to do so. Um, the great thing about being in Jackson Hole is that there, it's one of those mountains that just attracts a certain type of skier, the, the full-on redliner type of, type of skier. So with that in mind, there are lots of professionals there and lots of professionals within my friend group that I regularly get to ski with that are 
often helping me out and, and kind of pushing me in the right direction. Being the potentially the first Alpine ski racer to represent Jamaica, what sort of help do you have from the country that you're aiming to represent? Because presumably there's not too much of an infrastructure in the country to help to provide the, the support that you would need for the specific discipline. Yeah. So I'd like to give a shout out to Errol Kerr, who is actually a, a US Jamaican based out of Tahoe. He was the first Jamaican skier to get to the Olympics, but he competed in freestyle. So he was the first, uh, in ski cross. So he was the first freestyle skier, the first skier for Jamaica. And luckily because of him, um, well, not because of him, but partially because of him, we already have a ski federation here in Jamaica, believe it or not. It's a fun story. I'll, get, I'll give you the short and form, but uh, a guy by the name of Richard Sam, who's setting up this uh, whole trip for me here in Jamaica, used to race for England. He's an English guy in the 60s. He blew out his knee. He, he wanted to continue um, uh, training uh, in the off season after he had recuperated and recovered. And so he went to the Southern Hemisphere. But on his way to the Southern Hemisphere, he stopped off in Jamaica just casually for a trip. He had a bit of time before the ski season started. Super long story short, Richard um, graduated. Uh, ended up working in finance, had 2.4 children, the wife, et cetera, et cetera. And after a certain period of time, decided that there had to be more to life than, you know, his banker existence in London. He sold everything. He moved to Jamaica um, as a result of that, you know, small trip that he had in his younger years and ended up separating from his first wife, having a second wife with a, a second wife, a Jamaican wife and a half Jamaican child. And because Richard himself used to ski for his country, he wanted Andrew, his oldest son, to ski, and then eventually decided that maybe he could ski and get to the Olympics. So Richard had actually set up the Ski Federation back in the mid-90s, hot on the tails of cool runnings. So we've had a Ski Federation for almost 25 years, but only one athlete to get to the Olympics um, and no alpine skiers. Now, I'm having a meeting with the uh, president of the Jamaican Olympic Association, Christopher Samuda, on Monday, and I feel that Christopher, who's new to the role, he takes the role from his predecessor who was there for 40 years. So imagine the success that you would have seen as the president of the Olympic Association in the last 40 years of Summer Olympic Games. I mean, Jamaica won 10, maybe 11 medals at the last Summer Games. So, you know, the guy's probably seen 200 to 400 medals in that reign. So Christopher himself has some pretty big boots to feel, to fill, sorry. And I feel like after having spoken to him a few months ago, it is his intention to try and make Jamaica's winter offering as strong as the summer offering as his legacy when he finally steps down from this role, be that 10, 20, 30 years from now. And so I have his full support. Uh, I'm looking forward to getting out of quarantine to be able to meet him uh, and see what that really entails. But, uh, you know, even just the people in the hotel here are saying, we're proud of you already. Uh, you know, I haven't even qualified. Um, I've had phone calls from the local newspapers, the national newspapers here. So I feel like the Jamaicans will get behind me as, as someone that's trying to do something different and represent the country in, in, in a different arena. When I hear your story, the person that springs into my mind is uh, the violinist Vanessa May, who right. competed for Thailand um, in the 2014 Winter Olympics in Sochi. Um, and, and again, she had a music career as you, as you, yeah. you did yourself. And um, I think she was... I think I'm right in saying she was 36 when she came to compete for her country. So there's some parallels there. Um, and also I believe in GS um, was the discipline that she focused on. 
I wonder if she, if she is somebody that you've looked to or potentially reached out to for some advice and some support. I know of the name Vanessa May very well. She was a superstar when we were in our, in our teenage years. I presume we're similar age. Um, I did not know that she competed in 24 ga 2014 games in Russia. So, no, I, I hadn't heard that story. That's great. I'll definitely do my research afterwards. Yeah, for sure. Well, I'll send you a follow-up link. But, uh, yes, yeah, she was somebody who, uh, yeah, very similar path, I, I think, to, to what you're taking. But right. outside of that, who are the people that you're perhaps calling or looking to for inspiration and, and taking inspiration from, perhaps from within the discipline and maybe some people from outside of it too? Yeah, I, so my story is so unique and so interesting that I've had an outpouring of help from, from people in the industry. So if I rewind the clock back to 2019, where I really didn't know what a fist point was or how one would go about kind of collecting or earning, you know, I didn't, I didn't even know the nomenclature back then. I, I went on to an online forum on Reddit, r-ski, and I said, how would one go about getting 140 fist points? Back then it was 140, now it's 160, they've changed the numbers around. And the internet being as it is, you have all of the stupid answers and you know, the things that you just press delete on. But one guy, a guy called Mike Schneider out of, uh, out of Canada, he said, you know what, I, I teach U16 kids and a lot of my U16 kids, when they graduate and move on to the next uh, age bracket, they're already about that level. I'm the exact guy you need to speak to. Give me a few more details and I'll, I'll help you out. So I gave him a few more details. He then proceeded to literally write me a dissertation on absolutely everything I should do to get me from zero, I won't say to hero, but from zero to Olympian. And, you know, he, there, there have been many people along the way that have just given me so much assistance and, and so much help because they like the story. And so a lot of people have like, you know, been so fortunate that a lot of people have bent over backwards to assist me with gear, uh, Steve Nyman, current U.S. downhiller, has a, a care package waiting for me with a with a race suit and a couple of pairs of skis. I hope, um, and just a bunch of people are, are attracted to the story, are inspired and motivated by the story themselves. That they're they're willing to offer help and are willing to go out of their way to see that I succeed. Um, and as I said before, there are lots of ski pros in Jackson. Uh, Lindsay Dyer, former freestyle with female freestyle skier, is a good friend. Um, and she's been uh, completely, no one, no, nothing other than completely helpful with regards to helping me understand the world of sponsorship, helping me with technique. And many other people that come through Jackson have just been kind of attractive to the story. And so it's been, you know, I've been humbled by the amount of help and support that I've gotten. So is there anybody specifically that you're getting um, some advice and some guidance from Benjamin? Yes. I, I, you know, I was fortunate enough to be connected with Dudley Tao Stokes who is the pilot of the original 1988 Jamaican bobsleigh team. Um, obviously the inspiration for the money for the movie Cool Runnings. Him and I have a weekly call. Uh, we predominantly speak about sports psychology, sports nutrition. He's given me several books uh, to go away and, and read as homework. And what's interesting is, I don't think it can be understated how pivotal that movie was in so many people's lives that may not have been Jamaican, but just to get them into winter sports. And if there's ever a movie made about what I'm doing or anything as an offshoot from that, I just hope that it can be as inspirational for the next generation of, of, of people to get into winter sports and, and to do something that they might not have considered um, that they were able to do. What's the best bit of sage advice that he's given you to date? 
you know, Dudley really is focused on the sports psychology side of thing, uh, things. He has, uh, he, he's, he told me to buy a book called Peak Performance. Um, I forget the author's name, I apologize, but we can find that afterwards. And just, it, it really talks about the power of visualizing what it is that you are setting out to do. The book was written in the 70s, I believe, but it's you know, way ahead of its time. A lot of techniques that people are using kind of in a meditation type form these days, or um, you know, just having the ability to, before you undertake the action, sit there and go through this, uh, go through the, the, the motions, feel what every sensation would, would be on the skis and what it is that you're trying to achieve before you set out to go and try and do this thing in, in, in real life. And so that's, that's been something that I've been working on. Unfortunately, Dudley and I got speaking during the co kind of COVID moment. Um, and it's probably because of Corona and the fact that you have time to speak to me that we were able to build this connection. But I'm really looking forward to the next opportunity. I have some, you know, sustained time on the snow to really work on these things that we've been working on together. So as we talk now in the summer of 2020, um, what are the key steps from this point forward that you need to take to be able to get to that point of being able to qualify to compete at the uh, Winter Olympics in Beijing? Yeah, absolutely. So as I said about, you know, the internal daunting fears, first step is figuring out some of the finance stuff. And there are, there are ways to do this on a shoestring budget. And then there are ways to do this as if you were, you know, a national Olympian representing a, a legitimate um, threat to the podium, shall we say. And I hope to be somewhere in the middle there with regards to how much it will cost and how much I can raise to do that. Um, the next step, I plan to go to Switzerland uh, for all of September and maybe the first week or so of October to have an intense race camp. And then I will be back in Jackson Hole as of Thanksgiving, approximately the end of November, to ski there for the entire winter. Now, the plan that Mike Schneider, the Canadian coach, put out for me or put forward was the year 2019 or the season 2019-2020 would be about getting as much time on snow, as much time in gates, um, and as much time doing drills as possible, and not to worry so much about the races. His plan was for us to do maybe eight to ten races. I had 12 races booked, but only got to six because of the shortened season. Um, but really just use those races to understand the system and to make all of the mistakes that I'm likely to make at some point, but better to make them um, when it doesn't matter than for it to you know, happen later on in my career. So I did that and I made all of those mistakes. Um, now here in the 2020-2021 season, the intention is to hit about two dozen races uh, and preferably to do most of those you know, in, a, in a short flight or driving distance from, from Jackson to try to keep costs down. And I truly believe that if I can get to a dozen of those races by the end of March, I believe that I'll be down to or very close to 165th points from there. Everything beyond that moment in terms of training, continuing to race, it is completely dependent upon how much money I can raise. Um, and that in of itself will be kind of indicative of how competitive I can be when I actually get to the Olympics. But the only prerequisite for qualification is 165th points and the support of your National Olympic Committee and your National uh, Ski Federation, the latter two of which I have. Looking ahead to two years from, from now, you've competed at the Games. What does, what does that look like to you? What is success for you? What do you want to be, uh, what do you want to, those memories to be and what do you want them to look like? Yeah, I, I think what I'm trying to put forward here is the can-do mentality. I'd like to get to the other side of the Games having a respectable result, as I said, 
and to be inspiring for others that may not have considered to pick up something, whether it was a sport or whether it was skiing or whatever it may be. And then from there, we'll see where it goes. Um, does it mean that maybe I tried to compete in another games? I'd be, I'd be 43 at that point. I'm not sure. Uh, I'm not sure if my body would take another, you know, another four years of pounding into my 40s going down these slopes. Um, does that mean I do speaking engagements to hopefully inspire and motivate other people to get into the sport? I, I'm really not sure. Um, my mind is completely focused on getting to the games and putting in a respectable result run right now. Linking it back to um, uh, a couple of the points that you mentioned there. So your music career and, uh, and sort of cool runnings as well. Um, yeah. When they make a film out of your story and your journey to compete for Jamaica at the Olympics, what are the three tracks that you would like to have on the soundtrack to your movie? Oh, wow. No, I, I, I'm a big fan of kind of happy music. I love Lionel Richie. I, I, I love Michael Jackson's work. There would obviously have to be uh, some Jamaican music on there as well. But, but fun fact, um, Hans Zimmer um, of, of you know, movie soundtrack fame that did you know, all the biggest movies, Interstellar, uh, Inception, et cetera, et cetera, actually did the soundtrack for Cool Runnings. <laughs> Not many people know that. That's a very cool anecdote, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So maybe, maybe he can be the composer for your, your, your yeah, own personal I, story. I would happily give Hans Zimmer the, uh, the keys to, to put together what the soundtrack of, of that movie would look like. And for people that are, obviously, you've got a fascinating story, Benjamin, and uh, absolutely wish you every success um, you. in moving forward to execute yeah. it, which it sounds like you're very determined and uh, I'm, I'm sure that you'll, you'll make it. But for people that would like to uh, learn more about your journey and follow you along uh, as it progresses and continues, where can they find you? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, my Instagram is benji.ski, B-E-N-J-I dot ski. Uh, and if you just type that into your web browser as well, Benji.ski, it'll also take you to a website, which is pretty, uh, you know, just bone skeleton kind of setup right now, but there are more fun things to come there. Well, very best of luck with everything. Um, we'll be glued to see how your journey progresses and, uh, yeah, I hope it's not too long before you're able to get back out on the slopes again. And we're all able to get back out and enjoy yeah. the mountains this next coming winter. Absolutely. Me too. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure.